I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What is a good mental game? Let's use it for golf now, an example. What does that mean to you? Sure. Well, it transcends any sport. It's being able to focus on the right thing at the right time. How do we do that? Yeah. Get out of your own way. So the number one thing that distracts us in life and in sport is typically our... Three, two, one, boom. What's up, everybody? It's your coach. Welcome to the number one positivity podcast on the internet right now, the Coach HP Show. And I got the man. I got my man, Jonah Oliver. It. From Australia, dude. Welcome to Miami, bro. You brought the good weather. How does it feel? Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm super excited, man. Golf. I assume a guy that knows as much about golf as you do that you've played this your whole life, but you didn't, right? Let's start off with there, brother. Talk to me about golf. What about golf makes it, in your opinion, so hard that people need a guy like you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely not a, uh, an elite golfer. I'm a psychologist, right? Performance psychologist. So all my study was around how the brain works and how that works when pressure shows up. So there's a few sports in the world that probably lend themselves more naturally to needing a bit more psychological support than others. And so, you know, golf has the perfect ingredients. It's a fine motor control sport. So we know that, you know, one degree of club face change means the ball flies off in the wrong direction. And then you've got all this time between the next shot to think and worry and, you know, overanalyze. And and so it's got that perfect, you know, it's got the conditions to either allow you, if you've got a good mental game, you can really get a competitive advantage. But if you get in your own way, it can really hinder the performance. So let's get a good mental game. Jonah, what is a good mental game? Let's use it for golf now, an example. What does that mean to you? Sure. Well, it transcends any sport. It's being able to focus on the right thing at the right time. How do we do that? Yeah. Get out of your own way. So the number one thing that distracts us in life and in sport is typically our, our own internal noise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody can typically go out and train well. You know, every, every listener here can hit a baseball or hit a golf shot or hit a, hit a second serve in tennis, whatever it is, and do it over and over again. And then they show up to the tournament and sometimes that skill breaks down. Why does it break down? Typically because we lose focus. And where do we lose focus most commonly? On our own internal experience. So what does that mean? Our thoughts, our feelings, our anxiety. And if we have this sort of a, an unhealthy relationship to our own internal stuff, like... I've got to stop thinking that. I can't be nervous. I've got to calm down. Like there's a lot of myths out there that aren't true that we can talk about. Of course, of course. Of course. Um, then we're just distracted by that because we're trying to control our own psychology and failing, and then we get I lost. I love that. I love, love that. that. Okay, so let's talk myths. Yeah. What myth do you see repetitively common? Like, what's the most common myth you see? Uh, <laughs> calm down. Be positive. Just believe in yourself. Don't worry. You know, the, the world's best have unwavering self-belief and don't get stressed it's all a lie i work with the world's best they're perfectionistic therefore they worry about 
you know, not living up to those standards. Mm -hmm. They're quick to anger because they're perfectionistic. So when they violate their standards, they get, you know, annoyed. So, so you know, most clients in the high-achieving world of elite sport that I'd primarily work in are nervous before an event, angry during an event if it's not quite going to plan, and then sad after the event because they <laughs> don't feel satisfied, right? I call it the athlete triad, anxiety, anger, and sadness. Which is awesome. Okay, so now you, right? Because where you come into play is, which is, this is what I'm fascinated with, is an athlete doesn't have a microphone, like a headset, where you come in and go, all right, mate, take three steps back, go look at the crikey on the thing, right? The dingo, get the bloody dingo out of your head, mate, move over. So what should an athlete do? Okay, so I'm there, it's happening. I almost call it like code red, it's bad. What do you recommend? And then the second question is, how do you help? Do, are you more like they do a confessional? Like, Jonah, third hole, brother, I was out of it. Or do you notice it because you're present there and you take notes and go, okay, look, this is what I saw, this is what I saw, talk to me. Yeah, well, some great questions there and there's a bit of, a bit of complexity to it. Firstly, uh, I'm a huge believer in building the skills and techniques for athletes to be independent and autonomous. So my job is to put myself out of a job, effectively. As in, I need to give all of my studies of psychology and neuroscience and, and empower you to have the tools and techniques to be able to navigate the situations that will inevitably arise. So, yeah, do, do I need to be on a headset speaking to them on the... No, and you, you, know, you don't do that in, in, in many sports. Funnily enough, though, sometimes in psychology, um, we know that... Um, merely being present changes human behavior. So the example I always use is if you've got a bit of a bad back and your physiotherapist tells you that you've got to work on sitting up straighter mm -hmm. and then you walk into a room and you see your physiotherapist, we all sit up a bit straighter, right? right? right, right. We brush our teeth before we go see the dentist, of course. right? So sometimes, you know, why do I travel around the world? It's sometimes just that little connection and reminder of, okay, I got this and you're there, there and there it is. There. But to your question, what, what do you do to help people when you know, they're in those really spicy moments? There's some work you need to do prior, and then there's some what do you do in code red situations, right? Okay, so let's start with the prior. Let's sure. The prior. So the most important thing is changing your relationship to pressure, to anxiety. It's about acceptance. This is the most critical thing I bring to the world. You've got to learn that feeling anxiety is normal. It's the price of entry. We worry about things we care about. Whereas we often think we need to tell our kids and our colleagues and to calm down, don't be nervous, you know, have unwavering self-belief, you've got this. We're trying to make them feel better, but in doing so, we're actually making them worse. What we should be saying is, oh, you're a bit nervous. Makes sense. It's a big game. You've worked for years for this moment, so you're feeling a little bit unsure about how you're going to play. Well, that makes sense. And it's okay. Because feeling anxiety does not have any impact on performance. And I know a lot of your listeners will struggle with that. But it's the scientific truth. It's not causal. It's correlational. I was feeling nervous and I didn't play well. I come, I come home and mum or dad said, how'd you go champ? And they go, I didn't play well. What happened? I got too nervous. And we buy into that story that feeling nervous led to an underperformance. But no, it's I felt nervous, 
I then didn't want to feel nervous because dad had said, don't feel nervous, don't feel nervous. My coach said, don't worry, be positive. So I then went in my brain and tried to not feel nervous because I switch on the TV and I see the pros and they're not nervous. Look how they look. It's a lie. They are nervous. They just don't look it. Right? So then I'm trying to get rid of my nerves. So just think for a moment. I'm nervous and I deeply believe because people I trust and who, who have supported me tell me not to be nervous. And I then try to get rid of the nerves and I've, I'm failing. Now we have a bit of a technical term, what's called metacognitive worry. Don't worry about that, but that is the worry of worry. Yes, you're fighting two things you, now. Right. It's you against three people. Yes. You're, all in your head. you're nervous, and now you're nervous that you're nervous. You're worried right. that you're worried. And, so, and, and you're failing. And the harder you try, the more you're failing. And right. guess what happens to your focus? Your focus cognitively can't be on two things at the same time. Right. So whether you're looking at a golf ball or looking at a pitch or trying to throw a, a football, whatever it is. Your brain is internal and it's losing this battle and then you have like almost like a panic attack because you're, you're okay. struggling. I, look, I'm going to make sure I'm recording. This is perfect. Dude. This is great. Okay. My question then is, yeah. <laughs> I'm failing. I'm failing that I'm failing. So now it's two things, right? Yeah. What should, is the human being there? What should the human being do at that point? Is it breathe? Is it, what, what do you like to say? Yeah, interesting question. And so, I mean, I guess there's the fundamental letting go of the rope. So let's do a bit of a playful metaphor. Okay. Let's say that I'm your anxiety. I'm your self-doubt. I'm your criticalness. I'm your fear of failure. I'm the, I hope I don't embarrass myself. I hope mum and dad don't, you know, be disappointed in me. Whatever the story is, right. true or not true. Right. And, we're, we're, and let's say you're holding a rope right now and I say, get rid of me. And we start wrestling and you're a strong guy, but I'm still holding on. Right, right, right. And I say, well, is there a different technique here? Could you do something different? Right? And doesn't matter. after a while, you might realize, maybe I'll just let go of the rope. But I'm still here. Hey, you might stuff up. You might miss this shot. You might suck. You might fail. I'm still here. But I'm not fighting. Are your hands free? Yeah. Can you swing a baseball bat? Can you swing a golf club? Yes. Right. So the relationship to your anxiety is about letting go of the struggle and just letting the nerves be there, but stop trying to fight them. Just by letting go of the fight, you can actually free up your prefrontal frontal cortex to then focus on the actual skill. The actual skill. Then what do you do? Yeah, we might do some dropping anchor, you know, bringing yourself back into the present. But there's no point doing breath work and centering work and grounding work if you're fighting your anxiety. Right. Because all you're doing then is going, oh, I need to breathe to run away from the anxiety. I need to snap a rubber band, say a cue word to run away from the anxiety. And it just keeps hooking you back. So all the work out there you see in the landscape around cue words, breath work, stopping techniques, all that is, is actually relatively simple. But it's the work prior to that that then makes that work. Okay, so let's talk about the work prior to that. Because I believe... And, and it's a lot easier because when I have physical clients, I can do it with them and kind of manipulate it because I, I work with kids. So a lot of, couple of pro guys, but a lot with kids, right? But when it's over a Zoom thing, like you do a lot of stuff and I do a lot of stuff, that's a little hard because I'm not there on when that happens, right? Talk to me about the before work. How would you do, let's say, for an 11-year-old kid mm-hmm. who on the golf course has that exact same problem, what work do you do before you enter a problematic situation? Well, I guess I'd sort of be almost wanting him or her to be curious about their natural responses to what they're doing. So I'd ask the kid, 
So tell me, like, what, what's going on? You know, what's coming up? Oh, I've got some tournaments. Okay, and how are you feeling about that? Um, you know, I'm excited, but I'm also a bit nervous. Yeah. And what, you know, what's, what's that about? Oh, you know, I just, I don't want to feel embarrassed and I don't want to, you know, make a fool of myself and I really, really want to make the next team or whatever, you know, the usual things. And I say, so what's the likelihood you might feel a bit nervous in two days' time when you go out and play? Oh, I don't know, maybe, yeah, probably likely. Now give me a percentage. Oh, 75%? Okay. So you've told me that every other tournament you've ever played in, you felt nervous. You've, you came to me because you said that it was a problem. Mm-hmm. I'm going to challenge you on your maths there. Once if I said it's probably like 100% likely that you're going to feel some degree of right, tournament. Right, of you know, oh, yeah, that, yeah, you're right. Okay. So if we know with 100% certainty you're going to have some form of thoughts and feelings and anxieties, why don't we change the game? Why don't we get ready for it instead of hoping it doesn't show up? Right. So how do you get ready for it? By seeing it as not a problem. If I'm fearful of it, therefore I'm hoping it doesn't show up, which means I'm walking through the, you know, the woods just constantly hypervigilant to any form of threat, i.e. anxiety. How do, how do I wake up in the morning? How's my sleep? You know, how's my always just scanning the body and the brain? How am I feeling? Whereas if it's like, listen, it's going to happen. Right. And all your heroes you see on TV, they feel it every, every day too. It's okay. One of the things I do, Jonas, and, and I'm, you're the master, so I, I go to you and say, does this work or not? To me, what saves us is the plan. The plan. Whatever the plan is that we come up with, if we stick to the plan, regardless of result, you know, I'm, I'm super into the, the effort and attitude and the process of it, you know. The plan saves us when everything comes at us hard. Always. Whether it's the nerves, whether it's the this, the that, everything, you know. You use that a lot with your guys? Always. It's always about the behavior, right? There's no gold medals at the Olympics for, th- for thinking good or feeling good. Right. It's right. who behaves the best, <laughs> right? So we always reverse engineer. Okay. So if I said, what do you want to do today? Oh, I want to attack the golf course with my normal sort of approach or I want to, you know, s- you know swing freely no matter what the, the, the count is, or, you know, right. whatever. It's like, okay, all right. And... Are we really clear in what that is? So I talk about competence versus confidence. What does competence mean? Like, like uh, preciseness? Is that what that means? Competence is I can do something. Confidence is I feel like I can do something. Got it. Confidence is me here in Miami this week going to a karaoke bar with six beers and going, yeah, get me on stage. I can't sing. So that's not competence. It doesn't matter how confident I am, I can't sing. But there's people out there who are great singers, but they don't, you know, they get caught up in their story right. and they don't hop on stage. Right. Well, right. I know who I'd prefer to sing at my wedding or something, right? Somebody right. who can actually sing. Can sing. So we always want to remind ourselves, can you do the skill? Yes, I can. That's awesome. Right? That's awesome. Now let's look at what's getting in the way. When I get distracted by my nerves, then I don't actually repeat my competence. I don't replicate. That is awesome. Sorry about that. You're right. Well, so, you know, competition is an ordinary performance on a special day. I'll say that again. Competition mm-hmm. is an ordinary performance on a special day. Don't deny the specialness of it. 
don't deny that it's... Yeah, you it's, can't take that away. There's a crowd, that there's, that there's recruiters, that there's scouts, that there's millions of dollars on the line. That's the Olympics and it's a once-in-a-lifetime event. You can never take that away, so you don't need to. Absolutely. So because it's special, guess what? We're going to feel some special emotions. Mm -hmm. Excitement, hope, anxiety, doubt, fear, all the usual cocktail. But your job is to go out and be really boring. Normal. Replicate. That's why we train hard. That's why you must train at a very high standard. That's a practice. That's why I tell people, that's why I tell these kids is, and I tell their parents is, the key's to practice. And the more pressure you put on the practice, yeah. the more natural when you're on the field. Because if you don't see it here, me and you go one-on-one -on -one in that cage right now, Jonah. And I get you to hit a ball. And I tell you what's coming. And you can't hit it in a game when there's pressure, umpires, uniforms, people in the stands, and you don't know what's coming, you don't have a clue. So we got to start with the basics. Yeah. Replicate. You yeah. must replicate the conditions, not the emotions. Because you can't. You can't. I can't create nerves unless I shoot you in the foot. Literally. And yeah. I see, and that's another one for the, for the parents out there or the coaches listening, like all these attempts to recreate pressure in training. It's no, repli replicate the task constraints. Make the sport, make the training you know, as hard, if not even a bit harder than the, the, actual, the actual tournament, right. Right? right? And then we get used to that high level of competence and then we go, okay, now some emotion. So ordinary performance on a special day, let's just, you know, replicate our normal high competence by allowing the nerves and thoughts and feelings to be there. I can just focus on the right thing at the right time. So step one, we embrace the emotion and don't see it as a problem. We, you know, we worry about things we care about. Exactly. So having some nerves is a good thing. Then we can be present, learning to drop anchor, take a breath, but a breath to focus, not a breath to run away from the anxiety, right? It might be, you know, a sip of water and just feeling the water go down your throat. It might be, you know, just feel, you know, noticing something, you know, with your eyes on the golf club or the baseball grip or it just doesn't, you know, any of those techniques of just rapidly coming back into the present, which means I've, I've made room for my, my, my internal noise, now I can shift and just truly come into the present just for a moment. You know, you see a lot of athletes slap their thigh or do... It doesn't yeah. matter what it is, right? I've got racing car drivers that squirt the drink bottle in their helmet into their throat and just feel the water as they're doing 300 kilometers an hour down the straight. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Right. You can find something, something in your environment, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? To just say, okay, let's just really be present before I then kick into thinking about what I want to do. And then it's like, okay, what do I want to do right here? And that's that behavioral replication. It's like... Okay, I want to go after this shot. I want to hit this ball. I want to swing freely at this pitch, whatever it is. Jonah, analyzing your life, right? Your personality, is it more like your dad or your mom? Wow, I've never been asked that question in any of my talks I do. <sighs> I want to dig. Wow, my father was a professor of neuroscience. Very, very smart man. My mum is a a teacher and an artist. Look at that, so, she, so both were teachers, but mum is, is an artist, whereas dad was a neuroscientist. So I, I was raised in a very, and then my stepdad is a builder. Um, and, and um, yeah, wow. I, I hate sitting on a fence, but I'd actually say I'm just that classic hybrid of both. You know, I studied, I went to university and studied a lot of things and, had a real and still do have a passion for brain function and how how we you know deeply work in terms of a neural architecture I've always had a curiosity for that but I also love helping I love teaching I love you know 
which probably comes from, from both sides. What a great, like, that's why I say that you can't make this stuff up, right? Like a guy like you, based on that background alone, is so valuable because you get both sides of everything. That's why you're the best in the world. You know what I'm saying? Because you have an artist in you, you have creativity in you, you have patience in you, and then you have facts, you have technology, you have science, and the fact that you could put that in a language, that's an iPhone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's how I, I look at this. If you had you coaching you when, let's say, you were a teenager, mm. right, what would you have told yourself? Wow, that's a fantastic question, and I'll give you a little bit of a story. The reason I am in this career is because somebody like me came in and changed my life. Really? I was at a junior tennis tournament. I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 and a sports psychologist came in and she did a little 45-minute workshop, right? Which is why I still love doing these things, even though, I, yeah, I work with, you know, professional athletes and things around the world. Often when I can get time, I still love working just with the, you know, the kids and just giving back because I remember the impact it had on me. And it changed my life because he spoke a bit about our relationship to pressure, anxiety and standards and, and I had that light bulb moment and here's why. At a very, I played every sport as a kid in Australia. We, you know, rugby and water polo and cricket and tennis and you know anything I could, you know, anything I could play. I just loved sport. I loved what it sort of brought out in humans. And I had this conundrum. By the age of thirteen, I was playing first grade water polo, for example, with grown men. And the bigger the game, the bigger the occasion, the better I played. I, I bring on the grand final, bring on the pressure, whatever. I just, I would just, you know play really well in that environment. But if I was hitting my second serve break point in tennis, I would just tap it in. I wouldn't go for my normal kick serve out wide, right? And, the, and then, I'd, yeah, you'd, you'd get the serve in because you wouldn't fault, but of course the opponent would just smash the, the, the return back and you'd lose the point anyway. And I used to be really conflicted, like, why am I doing this? And really what I, I learned was my, my desire not to let my teammates down really? was really adaptive. Look at that. Like I just loved being in that team environment and it was less about me and my nerves and my perfectionism and my fear of failure. It was like, I can't let my mates down, you know, I'm gonna, let's go. And it just brought out this adaptive response where, like I said, the, the bigger the occasion in team sports, I would just embrace and say, let's go. And yet out there by myself, I just, it was about me and I didn't have anything else to shift my focus. And it was just, I got really tangled in my own story. And so this guy sort of did a little talk and I sat there and I went, that's what I want to do when I grow up. That's awesome. So, so from the age of uh, 12, when people said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a sports psychologist. And so I did. I knew from that age that that was, that was my calling. Wow, man, that is, that is awesome. I found out, I was going to ask you what makes you good at what you do, but now, but now I, know, I know why. What are the most common mistakes you're seeing in people? The most common mistakes, we try to take pain away. We try to take pain away as parents, as coaches, as partners, even ourselves. You know, our brain doesn't like discomfort, but life is hard. Life is pain. Life is failure. Life is setback. Life is heartbreak. Life is not getting picked in the team. Life is striking out in a big match. Life is, you know, missing that shot. You know, like life is hard. 
And that's why I love sport, because I think it actually gives you a controlled environment to learn so many of those wonderful lessons that life is going to you know, give you. But I see people trying to take that pain away. You know, the, your kid drops the ice cream on the floor and starts crying. Oh, quick, let's go buy you another one. Right. Right. He says, hang on. It's important that he learns or she learns that life sucks sometimes. And he's crying because he really loved that ice cream in that moment. And instead of just taking that pain away immediately, I want this kid to turn into an adult. And when he gets his heart broken by his first girlfriend, I want him to feel the pain of heartbreak. I love the little, I love that you brought that up. So I get asked by a lot of parents. They go to me, coach, why can't all coaches be like me? Right? And I go, then it wouldn't be a perfect world, right? Because in a perfect world, every coach would be like me. Cares, talks to her parents, gets their back, whatever. But every parent tells me, coach, I don't want my kid to get discouraged. I don't want my kid to get discouraged. You know, I go, okay, let me ask you a question. Did you marry the first chick you hooked up with? Yeah. I go, I didn't. Did you? He goes, no. I go, did you get discouraged? Did you quit? Did you start hooking up with dudes? Yeah. Did you stick with girls? What did you do? Eventually, you figured it out, right? In this life, we're not all meant to be baseball players. Mm -hmm. We're not all meant to be golfers, right? We're meant to be good human beings, right? And if we can learn that and figure it out that we need these obstacles to eliminate us yeah. from the track, right? Because if you would have been a so-so tennis player, we wouldn't have you as a sports psychologist. Right? You still would have been out there like, well, a frustrated tennis player. So I'd rather have you as a 10 sports psychologist than a mediocre five miserable tennis player walking around town just breathing. And in the boy world, I don't know if you see this in Australia or when you travel, but here in the United States, in the young world, the boy is losing compared to the girl immensely. If you take seven-year-old ballerinas, you pair them up, a seven-year-old ballerina and a seven-year baseball player, right? The ballerina world, you have a daughter, I don't know if she does dance or anything like that, but it is so discipline-orientated that the parent literally drops the kid off. They're not allowed in the face. They have to sit there, watch through a glass. You're not saying anything. You're not suggesting, hey, should my daughter toe tap? Whatever. You're not even going to get into that, right? But in the boy world, it's completely different. I sit there and I saw this, Jonah, when I started seeing, when I started working with three, four, five-year-olds, I noticed the moms walking into the field carrying their kids' equipment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> carrying their younger sibling of the kid. Yeah. And the kid's just like, la, 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 la. Yeah. And I see that everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I would tell people, I go, you can't expect a warrior on the field yeah. when you bring him in as a baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, great observation. And... I think maybe there is a bit of that gender difference playing out in different contexts, but I actually see it across different sports. Right. So some sports, it's much more about independent decision-making. You know, I think golf's pretty good for that. You drop them off because it's long and there's not really the crowd yeah, sitting around, whereas yeah, you know, things where you've got a baseball field or a tennis court or a basketball, you can sit and you know, commentate and get over-involved with that, where sports that you, know, you, right. you go at is, is, is good. Um, but then there's also cultural norms, right? You don't yell from the sideline in ballet. Well, why do we yell from the sideline in baseball, right? right? But let's just think for a moment what we're trying to do. We want to develop independent decision makers. That's all sport is a vehicle for. Absolutely. And the key in word is independent. Independent. Right. Because think about it. 
the best, and let's, let's, let's talk about promoting your kid. If you think your kid's got this talent and they're on a, on a trajectory to become a pro athlete, sure, great. But what do they need to do when they're in the middle of a, a baseball field with the lights on, a huge crowd, it's a World Series, and there's somebody you know, throwing a fastball at them? They need to make a decision what they're going to do. Yeah. Hey, Dad, hey, Mum, what should I do here? Like, come on. You've got to have that, self, that connection to self-competence, self-efficacy, and own your decision and make the decision. But if you've been stripped of that through your early developmental years, that's when you do look across too much and externally, and then all of a sudden, you know, your reaction time slowed, and your actual, you know, your actual performance suffers because you fundamentally don't have this locus of control. That here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. I'm in charge of my destiny here. Absolutely. So, and then. Let alone, we know that 99% of all athletes won't make it at a professional level, fine, but they can have a great journey through sport, and then they go on to make great decisions in business or Absolutely. select great partners to raise a family or because they've learned that, you know, I can make decisions, I can fail, but I'm not a failure. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to hit you with some questions that, that they sent me for you, buddy. Let me get you this one. You ready? Yeah. Okay, how important is, it might be some golf, so it's, but it'll be golf-based. Golf I know, I think that's your biggest thing. How important is course management for junior or any golfers? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, course management is critical. What you want to look for is stability of course management, meaning how do you play on a Tuesday and what's, you know, what's your 7 or 8 out of 10 sort of skill level in terms of the shots you might play mm -hmm. and then are you willing to then do that when it matters because if you are avoiding certain shots clubbing down steering it you know playing safe and conservative because you're now in a tournament then there's no way you're going to progress to being an elite professional golfer because you can't you know you've got to play the, the right style of golf to even get close Absolutely. so i look for we don't want to then go out and course manage like a, a Cam Smith, if you can't actually hit those shots, otherwise your score will be completely different than what you do in training. Absolutely. But you, so I look for stability. Set it up on the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday with your coach and, and how you go out there and, and course manage. And then the question is, are you willing to still do that when it matters? So when people say, what differentiates good from great? It's that. 
it's I'm willing to lose the Masters, I'm willing to lose the US Open, I'm willing to lose the Open in, you know, in Scotland, but I'm not going to compromise on the shot in front of me because that's how I dissect a golf course. That's beautiful. I love that, dude. I love that. Is there a balance between forgetting about a bad shot during a round and making a mid-round adjustment? Well, we can't forget, right? So, so our memory, you know, we can, we can, you know, bar, bar, black, Mary had a little, you know, I haven't said that nursery rhyme in 30 years, but I can still remember still it, remember, right? Yeah, so yeah. our brain remembers things. <laughs> so the idea of forgetting, rather shifting your attention. Mm -hmm. So ooh, we'll have to get a bit technical here. We want to talk about regression to the mean. That means that without any technical thinking, sports psychology input, coach input, nothing. If we hit a bad shot, the next shot is statistically more likely to be back towards our normal than not. Right. If we allow it to. But typically what happens is we hit a poor shot, we then get into the technique, oh, the club face was a bit open, I got a little bit of thing, and now you're introducing more and more noise and then you're chasing your swing all around. Versus you hit, you hit a poor shot, and you're like, oh yeah, the club face was a little bit open and I got it out of the heel or the toe, whatever the technical thing is. Mm -hmm. And then you maybe, you know, 20 minutes later, you have to play a similar shot again. And instead of compensating for that missed shot, come back to your normal. So it's just, hang on, where's my normal? Where's the normal swing? Where's my normal flight, you know, the path, the, the, the tempo, whatever, find normal again. So it's very important. Otherwise you have the pendulum swing. You do a poor swing, you then try to overcompensate for that poor swing and you do something different right. again. And then you're doing all this variance and then your game breaks down a bit versus going, my anxiety wants me to overcompensate for that, you know, hitting it left. But instead of trying to hit a don't hit it left shot next, go back to your normal. It's almost like if I were to mess up your hair right now, yeah. right? And you're like, oh my God, my hair's messed up. Instead of like starting to cut it or fix it, you're just going to annoy it. I'll just move it back to this way oh, and that's... That's how. Back to normal. Back to normal. I yeah. love that, dude. Yeah. That is very awesome. Okay. Everyone talks about short game. Mm -hmm. Is short game more about repetition, muscle memory, athleticism, or mental? Uh, yeah. I, I probably don't buy into the binary nature of technical versus tactical versus physical versus psychological. They all coexist, okay. right? They all coexist. Because in the short game, we know it's very fine motor control. So it's not a full swing. It's typically, you know, something that's modified. So you need to have a very high degree of, um, yeah, skill to, to replicate that. Right. So a huge amount of reps are typically reps. required. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. But then um, the quality over quantity is so important when you're doing short game work. How can I make sure that every shot, don't ever, don't ever hit a bucket of balls. I hate that in golf, where you go and get a bucket of balls and you sit it down and you're like, what are you doing today, champ? Oh, I'm going to go hit a bucket of balls. And hey, I say, not need a bucket. there might be 25 balls in that bucket. You better be hitting 25 shots. Got it, not 25 balls. Every single ball there must have a flight, a landing, a shape, a, purpose, a spin. A yeah, exactly, right? And so you go there with intent. And then the psychology of short game is how do I stay very connected and external? So what am I seeing? Can I paint that picture? Can I see where the ball's going to land and release and what the green's doing? What spin I want to impart? How's, how's, how's the club going to bounce into the grain? You know, am I willing to actually you know, hit it with some acceleration into the grain where my brain wants to be careful? You know, like As you're telling me this, Jonah, what I think of especially for kids is because 
it's almost impossible for a kid to think everything you're thinking yeah. there. It's almost impossible for an adult, yeah. right? So this is what I tell kids and parents. I want to see if you agree with it or not. Yeah. Every one of us matures at a different level. Mm-hmm. What I tell parents is keep the kid addicted to playing the sport. Yeah, 100%. Till it clicks. We don't know when, yeah. but let's not remove them from the sport before it clicks. Yeah. And I think a lot of... Pr- a lot of parents, a lot of exterior forces do that to a kid because what am I going to tell an 11-year-old? Hey, buddy, go out on your own and hit 20 quality shots by yourself, okay? Yeah. Go get them, champ. It's impossible. You want to create constraints-based learning, right? Now, what does that mean? Games, drills that evoke a bit of competitiveness and curiosity. Right. And, you know, the metaphor I use with short game with kids is, you know, for me growing up in Australia, we'd always mess around at lunchtime at school, right? Where you'd get a rock and try to throw it at a garbage can or something, right? And whoever got it in, you know, the boys had to buy lunch or something, right? Yeah, so yeah. now we're not sitting there thinking about the, 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 the pronation of our brachioradialis to extend it through flexion to make yeah, sure yeah. that you're just looking at the bin and you might be, you're holding the rock and you're thinking about the weight of the rock and the boys are all putting, you know, I won't swear, but putting... Yeah, yeah of course, you can swear and whatever you want. You know, and then you just focus. What's Australian swear? Give us an Australian swear. They're putting shit on you, right? Like they're giving you a bit of banter and, you know, your eyes are so sharp on that trash can and you're just thinking about the weight of the rock and then you, you throw it, right? There's pressure, there's banter, there's humour, but there's competitiveness, right? If we can create sport environments that are similar... All of a sudden, you've got a kid with a, with a, with a, I don't know, a pitching wedge or something in their hand. And yeah, we don't want them overwhelmed with technicality. But if you're saying, man, let's, you know, let's see who can get it within three feet of the hole and create some, some drills, then all of a sudden you'll find they'll naturally hit it with a bit more I commitment. That. I focus on that a lot. I focus more on destination versus technique and little stuff like that, you know, especially in pressure moments because it's so hard to remember that. It's really hard. It's really hard. See another one here. What drill would you recommend to a junior golfer to quickly learn putting speed on a new course? Um, okay, so whenever you're putting, just you know, warm up your technique first. Make sure your, your, your club face is square and all the basics. You all need basics. to do that first because right. otherwise you'll go and do speed work and you do all this and you'll think so you're it's... you're not heading the right way... Correct. You're heading the right way, you go wrong. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just do some small three to five foot putts along a mirror or a string line or, th- you know, any of that stuff to just make sure you're hitting it correctly. Okay. Then I love um, long putts to start with. I often see the other way. I see us starting shorter, shorter, building, 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 and then we get into those long 20, 30 footers. I like reverse because what happens is when you hit, say, a five-foot putt, especially into a hole, your brain can't pick up on the subtle difference of the pace. So it might roll into the hole a bit quicker or just you know, roll in a little bit. You can see some differences, obviously, but not the subtle stuff. Whereas if I'm hitting it 25 feet and I'm out by 3%, all of a sudden, you're six foot short versus six foot past. And your brain goes, oh, hang on. that's So you need to give yourself longer putts to be able to see the variance in your speed, dial it up, correct it, get it right, and then come back into the short stuff. So let's go, let's go from long yeah. to short. Start with long, Start with long. wake up the speed, mm-hmm. really get a bit more dialed into that. Then you might go back to your normal you know, routines of some round-the-world sort of putting and some other drills. But I like waking up our brain with 
with more data. Fire. I love this, dude. How important is the job of a caddy during a tournament? Yes, critical. Critical. Um, it's like having an assistant coach. Dude, and in my world, see, here's another thing that in golf sucks, where in baseball, it, uh, unless your dad's the coach, your dad's not going to get behind the umpire. That's right. But what I tell parents is, and parents have a lot of problems with this, is because you're catting your son, you are with him the whole way through. He needs to feel you're his best friend, not that you're his parent, that you're scolding him. You cannot do that at all. I know you've invested a ton of money. I know all these outer sources. I know yesterday you had lunch and he was great when you had dinner last night and life is awesome. When he's in there, that human being does not articulate things because things are happening so fast to us that we don't have time to stop and smell the roses, right? So you have to be the best friend. That's my thing. You talk to me. Spot on. And all you're there to do is help the player see options. So don't tell the player what shot to hit. You're stripping them of that decision-making and that independence. It's, hey, what are you seeing here? Oh, I think I've got to hit a three-wood here off the deck. To oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, I can. Any other options? Oh. Oh, I guess, well, oh, I suppose I could hit a three-iron and actually, you know, oh, and what do you think the pros and cons of that? And all of a sudden, you're just helping the child stretch their library of what shots you could play, right? And get it, and, and, and you might have what you think's right or wrong. You've got to watch it. Because yeah, you're not playing. Do you know what happens when he hits or she hits the, the shot that's not the right decision? They learn. Yeah. Oh, they're going to learn the other They learn. They learn. Pain. Yeah. We learn through pain. Yeah. Bang. Oh, shit. Oh, it was the three. What? I should have hit the. Well, that's a better moment, right? That they actually learn, and they're going to carry that for the rest of their career now and be a bit better with that, that decision-making versus dad told me to hit three wood, so I hit three wood, and it was. They didn't learn about the wrong either. So you want, you want to help them see options and also understand there's a difference between errors and mistakes. And error is merely the breakdown of a skill. Golf is hard. You want to hit a golf ball with speed, you get that club face one degree out of square and the, you know, we know it, it flies off in the wrong direction. So don't ever forget that. It's so easy to lose that perspective when you're not hitting the ball that, oh, you should have hit it there. Well, they didn't wake up this morning and say, I want to go out there and suck. Like they, right. They're going out there to try to do their best. And it's just, it's hard. So an error is merely the breakdown of, of a skill. Oh, I got that a little bit out of the toe. I hit, got it out of the heel. I got it out, you know. Whereas a mistake is failing to play the right shot for fear of an error. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I didn't want to go at the green because I didn't want to hit the you know, bunker. I didn't want to, I, I decelled into the grain because I didn't, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, hang on. Let's, as a caddy, come on, let's play the right shot. It's okay if it doesn't come off, I like that. but let's play the right okay. shot. That's why you're the best, dude. Many coaches I speak to explain that there is a difference between hitting a ball on the range and practicing. Too many times we hit balls and develop bad habits. How do you avoid that? It, I'm a big fan of varied practice. I think we, we, can, we can develop the wrong internal mental model of our skill mm -hmm. on the range. So if I, hit, if I hit one shot and it doesn't go where I want it, I then hit two or three more, I can typically get it maybe to where I want it. Right. And then I say, oh, good, I'm, I've got that shot. I'm, I'm hitting it well. 
And I'm like, no, it took you four attempts. You then take that athlete onto the golf course and they have that shot. They hit, haven't hit that shot now for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they've got to wake up that shot from their shot library and do it once and once only with pressure around. And it doesn't go where they want. And they're like, oh, I can't believe I'm not hitting it. On the range, I, I could hit this perfectly. It's like, no, firstly, you couldn't. You could. <laughs> it took you four reps. And B, you haven't woken that shot up now for an hour and a half. So what do we need to do? We need to develop training techniques on the range that have greater dispersion between shot types. So your brain has to find that shot from the library and wake it up. So let's say we're working on driver. Fine, we want to hit a bunch of drives today. I would say, I want you to hit one drive, really make sure it's right. Don't give yourself permission for three more. This one matters and see where it goes. Then maybe you've got to hit a pitching wedge and then a three iron and then a five iron. You make what yeah. you really do. It doesn't even have to be an order of a golf, of a, right. of a, just create some, some, some other motor patterns being released from your brain and then pick up a driver and go again and see what happens. And then you've got a much more honest test now, there's block training's important for just getting some, you know, if, let's say you're just getting some technical work. Yeah, you do mass practice, that makes sense. But really you want to do an exam that's more truthful in terms of can I find that shot after quite a while in between ever actually hitting it. Golf is about finding a shot often an hour between that, that shot. Between that shot again. And just doing it once. Wow. So you've got to do that in training. That is awesome, man. Do PGA players have mental strength coaches? Yeah, it's one of the more mature sports with psychologists. Yeah. I would say motorsport, tennis, and golf would be the most mature because in terms of individual sports. Yeah, individual. But having said that, I mean every team sport now in the world has a psychologist. I work a lot in football and and you know all different basketball, football, and code. So, but but. The PGA Tour and and live and you know the W you know ladies tour and all there there's a lot of us out there working yeah. because of the um, I guess the complexity of where the brain wants to take you in a sport like golf as we've spoken about so yeah there's a there's a fair bit of us out there I love I love that two more questions <clears throat> how did you get started like how did you who was your first client did you say okay I I'm I'm, I'm open for hire. How did somebody find you to get the first person going? How was that? <laughs> um, I'm terrible at marketing and promoting, and I always say I, I've never, you know, I've never gone for a job in my life. Uh, it's always just um, reputation based. So I started out like any aspiring psychologist. Once you graduate university in the performance space, there's no jobs, right? Like you don't a clinical psychologist. You might go work at a, a clinic or a hospital right. or, a, or a setting and get some years' experience before right. you get another gig. Mm -hmm. It, for us, as soon as you graduate, you're, you're running your own business. Um, I was working at a, a little academy of sport in, in Queensland, Australia, with like a, a, a men's water polo team, just doing this tiny little bit of, I mean, four hours a week, right? It was my first tiny little gig. And the doctor in that support team worked with a professional football team. And they were looking for somebody. And there was plenty of guys and girls out there who had way more experience than me. And when the, the, the coach and I think the CEO asked him, who do you think could come in and help? He actually gave me that opportunity. He said, there's this young guy that I've worked with. I'm impressed with him, even though he's got no experience. What do you think he liked about you? I think the science I spoke about earlier, the idea of acceptance. 20 years ago, everyone was promoting 
controlling anxiety, right. creating positivity, blocking out the bad, harnessing the good. And I was using a different scientific approach. I, was, I read all the literature and said, no, this, is, this isn't actually working and this is actually what's more effective. And so I probably brought that to the table about saying, let's, let's allow the athletes to, to just embrace the nerves and pressure. It's the price of entry. It's going to show up. Let's not get distracted by it and let's come back to those behaviours and, and be more anchored to that. And he saw maybe how that was helping you know, in this little you know, client group of, of water polo players. And before I knew it, I was working with a professional football club. And we went, soccer? Yeah, that was soccer. soccer. And we went through a few years there and ended up you know, winning two premierships back-to-back and having some success. Nice. And that probably launched the career from there. <clears throat> what makes uh, Cameron Smith so good? His, his, his ability to not change. So doesn't matter what the context is. His coach, his caddy, me, we know the shot he's going to play. We know the course management. We know the club head is going to, you know, he's not going to decel and steer it. He's not going to avoid, he just, he understands how to reverse engineer attacking that golf course. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what the scenario, doesn't matter what's on the line. He says it's too important to him to stick to that brand of golf than play the situation. So he plays the shot, not the context. Beautiful. But he plays it, you know, in the context. So, yeah, yeah. you know, nerves and, and, you know, pressure yeah. and all that. But it's like, okay, right now I'm hitting the seven iron mid-flight, left to right. Yeah, there's water there and sand there. And, and if I miss this shot, I lose millions of dollars and don't get the... That's fine, but that's the shot. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. During the course, right? So let's say today leading up to it, if you could put us in the room, what's your job? Do you sit there in the golf cart and watch the guy play around? And does he ask you questions? Do you bring stuff up? How does that work? I just look for consistency of behavior. Does he, does he, do I, okay, so let's say you're my guy. I'm there. And when, do I talk to you in doubt? Do we have a meeting after? It varies on the athlete. And most of my athletes, I've done a lot of work prior. So the more you do work with people... So like, so like now, let's say here, everything's done prior. Yeah. What do you do here now? Just looking for behavioral consistency. Okay. So I'll see the warm-up. I'll see the, the way they're putting or chipping or hitting the ball. I'll see, are they, are they going back to reset to normal? Or are they getting into overcompensatory swing adjustments? Right. I might have a little chat about you know, what I'm seeing there. I'll ask them how they... Literally, what's the plan today, you know? Oh, I just really want to, any, anything showing up. Oh, feeling it a little bit, you know, a couple of shots here or a couple of, you know, maybe there's an, a club in the bag that's just not coming off quite. Okay, so what's gonna, what are you going to do when that shows up? Because you're going to need to play that shot at some point. Oh, yeah, got to see that as just noise, make room for it, and just normal committed swing. So there might be something within the bag that they, they're just getting a little mm-hmm. bit stuck with. Uh, otherwise, I'm just looking for what does the blueprint look like on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? So it's the before yeah. you come in. Yeah, okay. and then it's a reminder Let's make sure we go out there and replicate. Mm-hmm. That's all we got to do. Don't put a Superman cape on and try to lift and play better. Right. No, replicate. replicate. Dude, that is so funny. Break that up. So I'll, I work with one of the best comedians right now in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he's a monster. And he's he just shot his first Netflix special. Mm-hmm. Okay, not not Netflix special. Might go on Netflix, whatever. And you, in comedy, what they've learned is you shoot two different days. Two different times, so you get enough because it's gonna it's all recorded, so you never know one perform. You don't want to put all pressure on one performance, so you do like four different times, right? And day one, 
the dude dressed differently. Like he put on clothes that he wouldn't normally wear because he did it for the thing. And I think it ruined his whole thing. And he also took like calm things, this and that. And day two, he came and crushed it, right? But I never did what you just did right there, which is, okay, you're performing on this date. What's the plan? How are you feeling? Yeah. What are you wearing? Yeah. Who's going to be with us? You're bringing your chick? You're not bringing your chick? What are we going to do here? So we're ready. What's the sound? What's the music going to be brought up? And I love that, dude. And also being flexible enough for it not having to be identical. We often try to make it feel and look identical. No, no, our behaviors are identical. It doesn't matter if the hotel doesn't have my favorite cereal. It doesn't matter if I have a bad sleep. Does it matter if my girlfriend comes or not? Does it, come on, this is too important to get this wrong. Right. Let's not try to control our, our world into this minutia. Let's just be flexible and roll with whatever. But the one thing we're never gonna deviate on is going out there and doing what matters yeah. and replicating that behavior. So, you know, it's, it's, it's about being so flexible that I can roll with whatever because, you know, it's not about how hard something is, it's how important something is. And I love sharing that with people. We get so caught up in, in, in all of our anticipatory stories. It's like, hang on, I'll run in front of a car for my kids. I don't care how painful that car is on my body because my kids are so important, right? So you want to help your clients understand what's important today. And, you know, playing to my brand, playing consistently, putting, you know, putting the best version of myself out yeah. there. I say, right, well, you need to connect to how important that is. And that needs to be more important than the short-term stories around failure and missing a shot or not doing this or what have you and just connect to that better version of yourself and so that's why I love helping people develop that flexibility of I don't really care about the pillow in the hotel I don't care about the breakfast and at the buffet I don't really like those things are so secondary because what I'm about to go out there and do today has such importance to me that get out of my way let's go yeah dude I love that man Johnny you said it all you're the man, dude. I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. What's your favorite type of music? Back to my upbringing. I have a really eclectic yeah. uh, upbringing. Um, okay, okay, what would you motivate yourself up to, to do this? Do you listen to anything before or anything like that? To... Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'll, I'll take a little segue. I love music, but I love mu- using music as a tool of mindfulness. Really? So the cool little life hack for your listeners mm-hmm. is take a song crank the volume up in your headphones or in the car and then don't listen to the song listen to one instrument in the song like you're a sound engineer trying to isolate the drums or the guitar it's really hard and you'll listen to the drums and then the guitar kicks in and you'll get distracted what was the last song you recommended that's in your head that that one of your clients use that you remember what literally whatever's on their plate does anything come to mind any song that you could give me or anything but just one, one that you know anybody or anything? Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, there's an Australian band called Powderfinger. Powder Powderfinger, all right. Yeah, which is a good Brisbane band from where we sort of grew up. Nice. What's your favorite song of Powderfinger? Uh, maybe These Days. All right, yeah. all right. See, that's what we're talking about, buddy. That's what I like to hear. Jonah, I always end the show with this, dude. Any question for me, man? One question for me. What is it you're hoping the podcast is going to leave as a legacy? Like, what's the legacy of this, this work? This, bro. This. The fact that two guys can sit down, you're way overqualified. I am so underqualified. But the fact that 
we can sit down and have a normal conversation with two dudes that care about other people, it's to me, it's everything. Because people go through life and they won't figure it out. And they won't even know to ask questions to figure it out. And that's why divorce rates are up. That's why anxiety, depression, misery's up. And they're gonna go through this beautiful world without saying, man, so this dude brought in this Australian guy who knows his shit really well. And he just said, okay, I'm gonna take my son out and I'm gonna enjoy the beautiful weather and he's gonna play and he's gonna do good and he's gonna do bad. But the fact that he's alive at the end of the round, man, we all want him. And instead of doing that, they're gonna nitpick everything and they're gonna fight with their kid and they're gonna fight the way back and they're gonna punish the kid. No electronics, no this, no this or that. And this goes to show you, I think that there's, there's no such thing as bad students. It's just bad leaders because the tone has to be set. And it isn't being set because the schooling system don't do that. So you're either uh, super talented and you happen to catch a break and you got a guy that can help you or you're super talented, but you don't catch that break. And then you end up being going into society and not being that person. So that's what I hope to do with this. And I hope you do it too with yours, man, because you got so much this. I'm going to clip certain things right now that I know it's going to I'm going to clip and they're going to do phenomenally well because it's so good information, you know? Now, the gift I have that I could ask it like a normal person, and, I'm gonna, and I make you feel like we're two bros talking versus, hey, so now, doctor, what are you doing? That, and that's the beauty of today. Whereas 20 years ago, it'll be a conversation where it'll go through everybody's head. But now, because a guy like me can kind of do this, is, is really good, so I'm really pumped for that, man. Love it. I'm really pumped, dude. Where can they find you? Tell them. Uh, my website, jonaholiver.com. And uh, I, I travel around the world sort of every few weeks, so people can find me. I live, I live in the shadows a little bit, but that's something I'll work on. I love it. I love it, dude. All right, there we go. Boom.